You guys can have a seat. Thanks for coming today as we, we wrap up, not Luke, but Luke chapter 1. We finished the first chapter. I mean, there's 80 verses, so that's kind of an accomplishment, but we've reached the end of the first chapter. We're going to be talking about it today. And, and you know, we've been saying this a lot over the past few months as we've, you know, we went through the book of, of Daniel and now we're into Luke. And this is our plan for a long time. Why? Because as believers, as Christians, Christ followers, we need to know scripture. We need to know what the word of God says, you know, especially in a, in a day and time when we look around us and it seems like the, the entire world is just falling apart. Like now more than ever, Christians, if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we have to have a deep knowledge and understanding of the word of God, not a verse here or there, not just inspirational things, but true wisdom that comes from his word. And so we've decided as a church, that's what we're going to do. We're going to open it and we're going to read it verse by verse and we're going to study it and we're going to teach it and we're going to apply it to our lives. We're going to talk about it. And we hope that you're coming along with us on this journey. I've seen on social media, a lot of people doing, you know, our daily devos, which talk about these same verses each and every week, Monday through Friday. Uh, I, you're doing the table talks. If you haven't done the table talk thing that's on our app, if you have kids, especially, man, it's awesome. It just gives you kind of a guide to follow kind of over dinner and ask your kids what they learned about this week. Because by the way, your kid, if you have kids right now in our children's ministries, they're going through these very same verses with the same kind of big ideas that's tailored for, for them. And if you have a youth student in junior high, high school, they're down there doing these same verses with these same ideas. And so this gives you an opportunity as a family to sit down and kind of talk about what they heard, talk about what the word said and how to apply it to our lives. And then of course, in, in groups, if you're not in a group, get in a group. I mean, we do these same things in our group. We, we write up a leader guide that kind of dives deeper into what we're going to be talking about today. For example, for this coming week, the groups are going to be talking about that, how to apply it and what, what's convicting to them and, and what are they struggling with when it comes to all the things that we've talked about, how we can be praying for each other. So I hope you're, you're ready to go along with us because what I've found is, especially having to teach it and just dive deep and to study it. I mean, God's word is alive and life changing. It's powerful. And I hope it's giving you life as well. We've been in, in Luke, like I've said, if you've missed anything, you can go back and watch that on, on our app, watch any of the services you've missed. But let me kind of really quickly recap where we've been so far. Uh, it started with Gabriel who, who came and had a message for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, now they were in very old age by this point and they had tried to have children their entire uh, time together and were unable to have kids. Elizabeth was barren and they'd struggled with this, man. They'd struggled with infertility. They were hopeless to have a baby. But then Gabriel comes and says, guess what? God is, is going to help you conceive a child, even in your old age. And he's going to be named John and he's going to be the prophet of the Messiah. He's going to kind of pave the way for, for Jesus. And we see that, that Elizabeth responded with, you know, gratitude and humility. But Zechariah, even though he was a, a holy man, right, a righteous man, he had some doubts. He was like, are you serious? Don't you know how old we are? Yes, for a sign. And so God disciplines Zechariah 
And Gabriel says to him, but now since you didn't believe what I said, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. And many people think he was deaf for that time as well. We'll get into that in a minute. But this was God's discipline in his life. I mean, you think about that. An angel showed up to him and spoke to him in the flesh. And still he had some seeds of doubt, some unbelief in him. So, so God calls him out. And then Gabriel appears to Mary and tells Mary the, the good news that the Holy Spirit is going to, even though she was a virgin, it was going to conceive in her a son that was going to be the Messiah, Jesus. And she too responds just with humility and gratitude and, and with a, her own song of worship. That's what Clayton talked about last week, the Magnificat. Both Elizabeth and Mary, now they're, they're pregnant at the same time. Elizabeth's a little further along in her pregnancy. And uh, that's kind of where we pick up uh, in verse 57. So we're going to read quite a bit today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Obviously, it'll be here on our app. We have the message notes. If you've never tried that, that's the way I like to do it. You can fill in the blanks and all the points are there. All the scriptures are there for you. So do that if you want. All right, let's get going. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. So a couple of things, a couple of things here. As you know, circumcision was a Jewish custom tradition dating back to God's covenant with, with Abraham. So when a, a baby boy was born on the eighth day, that boy would be circumcised. It was also customary for the boy to be named as part of this uh, ceremony, this circumcision ceremony. Now, now, this seems a little bit weird to me, maybe it does to you too, but it was also, it wasn't unusual for the room to be full of people that come to watch this circumcision. I mean, it's not really my kind of entertainment, but you know, to each his own, right? I have a feeling maybe the room was mostly full of women. Uh, there's no scriptural reference for that, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. And get this, dads especially, guys, dads. It was also customary for the dad to be the one to perform the circumcision. <sighs> you know, I, at that point, I think maybe my, my boys would just grow up Gentiles, if you know what I mean. So like, I was like, I, I freaked out cutting the cord. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't want any part of that. And then it goes even further. This group of people that's come, the neighbors and the family, they get to chip in on naming the baby, which seems a little bit weird until, you know, the more you think about it, what some of you name your kids, it's probably good to have some outside input, right? Like for someone to say, probably, probably don't go with that, you know, like, uh, this here's my boy Stick and his brother Bear, you know, or whatever. You're like, man, what a, what a great way to come into the world wondering why your parents hated you so much to name you something like that. And, and I'll, I'll probably get in trouble for this one. The first service didn't get it. But uh, my dad claims that he went to school with someone whose name was Shithed. Uh, I'll let you figure that out in the car on the way home. Anyways, <laughs> most of the time for the boy, it would be named after the, the father or the grandfather. So in this case, it just made sense. Zechariah should be the name, right? So the, the, the crowd has spoken. Let's name him Zechariah. But what does Elizabeth say? She said, no. No, no, no. He's already been named. His name is, is John. 
So if you remember when Gabriel visited them, that was part of what, what he told them. Like your, your baby is to be named John. God named the baby, right? Which is the ultimate trump card for this room full of families. Like, hey, you know, God, God did it. So he, he, the baby's going to be John and there's, there's no argument here. But that's not good enough for the family. What do they say? What? They exclaimed. There's no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name this. So this is hilarious to me. This makes me think that maybe, maybe Zachariah had some family in the room, right? And that was like, all right, okay, Elizabeth, like, why don't we see what the dad has to say, right? Like, like what do you think, Zachariah? So they used gestures, right? This is what gives us the indication that probably he couldn't hear as well. They're like, let's ask him. You see, the, the crowd here, they, they were unaware of what God was doing. They didn't see the big picture. They didn't get it. It just seemed like foolishness to them. So here's a little sidebar here. When you're obedient to God, when, when you're doing the will of God and he's doing something in you, the crowd won't always get it. People around you won't understand. It, it'll look like foolishness to them because they don't see what God is up to. Now remember this as well. You have nine months now, plus eight days, or however many, you know. Zechariah's been unable to, to speak, unable to, to hear. Think how miserable that would be for him in this time. They, they're, they're finally in, you know, they, they've waited for this moment their entire lives. They're in, way up there in age, and finally, they're pregnant, right? Finally, they've gone through this process of pregnancy. The baby is born and all of this, the festivities and everything else. And here you have Zachariah, who is a prisoner in his own mind. He's left alone with just his, his thoughts and his mistakes and the shame and regrets of the mistake that he made. His unbelief. He was in prison. The crowd asked him, what do you think we should name the baby? And it would be easy for him to say, Zechariah, right? It, that's just what you did in those times. And plus, think, think about this. He, he knew that his baby, John, was going to be an amazing tool for God. Like he was just going to be this, this mountain of a man, like with this huge story. It would have been awesome for Zechariah to be able to have his name attached to that. But see, he, it seems like he learned a little something through this process because he motions for a writing tablet. This is probably a piece of wood covered in wax that he would, you know, scratch into. He says, to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. His name is John. He's learned. He, he gets it. His name is John. In Hebrew, it's Yohanan. Yohanan, it literally means the gift from God, or you could say it this way, graced by God. So, so in this name of John, Johannan, for the rest of his life, every time he would speak the name John to his son, it would be a constant reminder of the faithfulness of God and how undeserving they were of this precious gift that he had given them. That's powerful. So he writes it out. His name is is John in verse 64. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again. And what did he do with his 
speech returning, he praised God. He could speak and he instantly praises God. See, he had been, he had been disciplined by God. He had been called out by God. God put, put his hand on that, that place in, in Zechariah's heart. He, he pressed on him in that, that spot of unbelief and he exposed it. And he was disciplined and now he's learned his lesson. That's our first takeaway today. God disciplines because he loves. He disciplines because he loves. In Proverbs chapter three, it says, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you for the Lord corrects those he loves. Just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. I mean, as a parent, you, you get this, right? Even if, even if you don't have your own, you remember back to your parents or whatever, it's like, it just makes sense. Like you love your kids so much, you can't just let them do whatever they wanna do, why? because it'll lead to their destruction. They're gonna get hurt. You don't wanna see your kids get hurt. So you have boundaries. And when they step across those boundaries, there, there are consequences. And those consequences are painful for the child. And sometimes it's hard, it's hard to discipline your kid because you don't like to see them in pain, but you know it's for their ultimate good. You see things that they don't see. And so it is with, with God, our, our perfect, loving, heavenly father. He, he disciplines us because he loves us. It would be a very unloving thing to not discipline your child. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they'd assumed their, their entire lives that this infertility problem that they had, this barrenness was God's discipline for them. That's kind of what they thought in, in those days, like if, you know, the, this whole barrenness thing, it, it was a curse. It was like, you did something to upset God. God's punishing you for something. There's some kind of sin in your life or whatever, but, but they were wrong about that, obviously, right? God was just doing it differently than they thought he would. It looked a little different. It took a little bit longer. And then the rebuke for his unbelief was the discipline. And then Zechariah learned from it and he started praising God. Have you ever experienced God's discipline in your life? Or maybe things you assumed was God's discipline. Maybe you've even been, been angry at him. Maybe you've been bitter. Maybe you've questioned your faith. But, but maybe, just throwing this out there, maybe, maybe God is just doing it differently than you thought he would. When it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to, to walking with Jesus, we stay stuck until the lesson is learned. We stay stuck. Think about this, if Zechariah, what if, what if he had written down Zechariah on that tablet? Do you think he would have gotten his speech back? Do you think he would have been able to hear? I mean, he might've stayed that way his entire life, but he learned. He learned to trust God and he moved on when his relationship with him. You take this example in school. It may not work this way these days, but back in the day, if you didn't pass a grade, you got to repeat that grade. You know, like if you're in second grade and you didn't learn any of the lessons, you didn't pass any of the tests, you get to do second grade over. And I think a lot of us Christians, 
We are stuck in second grade spiritually because we've failed to learn the lessons that God is trying to, to bring us through. We hit the same wall over and over and over and over again. And it, and it locks us into spiritual immaturity. Last week, we talked about how God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, see the proud have no need for God. They have no need for, for his ways or his discipline or learning any kind of lessons because we've got it all figured out. We can do it on our own. We don't need him. See, God has a way of humbling us and reminding us how much we really do need him in our lives. He has a way of driving us to our knees and getting us to look to him. When it comes to his discipline in your life, think about it this way. Could it be that God's not mad at you, but that he loves you too much to let you stay stuck? Could it be that God loves you too much to let you stay stuck in your relationship with him? Zechariah, he, he was disciplined. He, his unbelief was exposed. He learned his lesson. He, he moved on. David, you remember King David, 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is kind of David's most infamous story, right? In, in kind of the darkest moment of his life. You probably know the story well with David and Bathsheba. He was supposed to be off to war. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was up on the roof walking around, killing time, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing, and he sends for her. He finds out it's Uriah's wife, one of his, his best guys, one of his soldiers. He sleeps with her anyway. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover his tracks. He calls for Uriah from the battlefield and, and tries to get him to stay with his wife so he, they can kind of cover up this thing that's happened. And Uriah is such a man of integrity, he won't do it. And so David gets desperate and he literally, you know, he, he decides to send Uriah up to the front of the, the battle, right? The front lines where he knows it's going to result in Uriah being, being killed. And he writes this, this order and he seals it and he hands it to Uriah and Uriah literally takes his own death sentence. Ends up on the front lines and he's killed. David thinks he's gotten away with it, but in walks Nathan, Nathan, the prophet. And he tells him this parable and then it just outrages David, you know, and he, he gives that famous line. David, you are that man. And then suddenly David is, is faced with his sin and faced with all that he's done. And he is absolutely broken. And in his repentance, in Psalm 51, right after all this has happened, he writes, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. He repents. God, God, see, God presses on that thing in David's heart that, that led him to these behaviors. He wasn't concerned with all the, the behaviors. Like he wanted to get to the root of the problem in God's, uh, in David's heart. And he exposes that thing. And then in this discipline, David says, let the bones you have broken rejoice. He repents and it leads to rejoicing. 
But the story wasn't over for David. He, he, he enters into a, a few years of just absolute nightmare, right? The, the baby dies and war comes through. I mean, everything falls apart for him as he's dealing with the, the fallout from his bad decisions. But God's got his, got his heart back. The woman at the well, you might remember this story. It says that Jesus, when they're, they're in, you know, traveling, him and the disciples, it said he had to go through Samaria. Well, if you know anything about Samaria, the Jewish people and the Samaritans, they did not get along. The Samaritans were, were outcasts. Like, you didn't go through Samaria, you went around Samaria, even if it took you a lot longer because you didn't want anything to do with them. But Jesus had, a, had an appointment with someone in Samaria. He goes to this well in the center of town in the middle of the day where this woman is drawing water. Well, women didn't draw water in the middle of the day. It was too hot. They would do it early in the day. This, this woman wasn't just any woman. She was a woman of ill repute. She had a history. She was avoiding the crowd because of her past and the things that she had done. People knew She's drawing water in the, the middle of the day and Jesus walks up to her and asks for some water. And in fact, if he'd even taken this cup from her and drank from it, he would be ceremonially unclean. They start talking about water. He, he tells her about living water, that he could give her water that she would never thirst again. And she says, give me some of this water. And then what does he ask her to do? He says, go get your husband. So you see, he cuts straight to the heart of the matter. Like he, he puts his hand on that thing in her that's the source of her shame and the reason that she's an outcast, right? Like he, he pulls it out. He exposes everything in her that she wants to hide. Had to be humiliating, right? She's not married. The one she's living with is not her husband. She'd been married a lot of times. She's, she's had... The history there. But then Jesus tells her he's the Messiah. She runs into the village. These people that she based her life on avoiding, right? Like she runs into the village and she tells everyone, come see this man that told me everything I ever did. Then you have Paul. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about this thorn in his flesh. Paul's this, this giant, right? Like it, just in this Jesus movement. I mean, he was one of the, he even told us like he was the best of all the Pharisees, right? And now he, he's just on fire for Jesus and he's changing the world. He wrote two thirds of the New Testament, but he's got this thorn in his flesh. He, he doesn't want anyone to give him credit for all the amazing things God was doing through his life and his, his ministry. So he says this in chapter 12, he says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Some theologians kind of disagree on what that actually might have been. It could have been like an actual physical ailment. It could have been some depression or anxiety or something like that. Could this like a demonic spiritual attack, whatever it was, Paul tells us that he begged God. He pleaded with them three different times. Please take this from me. He was miserable. And God said, no. God said, no. He said, my grace is all you need. And my, my power is best displayed in weakness. 
And so Paul now boasts in his weakness. He put that, he put his hand on that thing in, in Paul's life that could destroy him, that pride. And he pressed and it was painful. What if in the, in the painful things of life, whether it's a, a business falling apart or financial problems or marriage problems or parenting problems or illness and sickness and death and all of the things that, that bring us suffering, what if in these things God is actually displaying his mercy? What if in the things we experience in our lives that, where he's disciplining us? What if he's exposing our sin or rebellion or unbelief or, or our wrong thinking to show us that we truly need him and, and so that we can be healed, so that we can be whole, so that we can experience true peace and freedom and fulfillment in our lives? What if he loves you too much to save you from the pain? An example in my own life, a lot of you probably know Clayton and myself and Mark and Barry and a, a few others. We used to be at uh, Experience Life Church. I was one of the ones that helped start eLife back in 2007. And that very first Sunday in September of 07, Mark, who was an 18-year-old college punk, you know, with with the Bieber haircut, you know, he... he uh, was in the band from that first weekend playing guitar and, and man, God did some amazing things. I mean, it was like a rocket ship. It was like, I'd never seen anything like it. Like my, my whole life in ministry, I, I was doing worship at that time. And it's like, I dreamed of being a part of something my entire life, like experience life, like every single week. I mean, people, committing their lives to Christ and hundreds of people getting baptized and you're just seeing all this fruit from your labor. And we were working hard, you guys. I mean, we were meeting in a skating rink and we were setting up and tearing down every weekend. And, and at the peak of, of that, the services there in the skating rink, we were running like 3,000 people setting up something like 12 or 1,300 folding chairs and miles of pipe and drape to kind of section off things and putting up signs and putting up stage and, 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 and all the sound equipment and all that stuff. And five services a weekend, two Saturday night, three Sunday morning, and then tear it all down. And then Monday night, we had a prayer service. We put it all back up, had a prayer service, took it all back down. I mean, we were going as hard as we could possibly go. Every single weekend was the Super Bowl. You know, every single weekend was like Easter for us. We were, we were going. We were working as hard as we could work. And I got to this point a few years in, this is like right after my, my youngest, or my, yeah, my youngest was born about 11 years ago. And I hit a wall, man. I mean, I don't know if it was like a physical burnout or a spiritual burnout or whatever, but all of a sudden one day before church, I just started crying and not just like, you know, I was like sobbing and I, I, I couldn't stop. And then it happened again. And I'm like, man, what is going on? And so I got to take six weeks off, right? Just to kind of figure some things out. And let me tell you, it was the darkest hell on earth, six weeks of my entire life. I mean, I, I couldn't really figure out where all this was coming from. I, I, I mean, I remember times laying in bed next to Jennifer in the middle of the night, just sobbing 
so hard, like I was afraid she was going to wake up. I would come back and people were like, how was, how was your time off? I bet it was awesome. I'd be like, yeah, it was, it was really good, you know, and just like inside, just like, man, I don't, what, what is all this about? And it's taken me a lot of years. Like for a while, I was like, you know, it probably was some physical burnout. It probably was some, some spiritual things. Like I wasn't really, you know, I was pouring out a lot and not really getting filled up enough. And that's kind of where I had settled on what God was doing there. I don't know if it was his discipline. I don't know if it was just what I did to myself or whatever, but it's taken like seven or eight years past that point for me to finally look back and kind of see clearly what God was doing in, in, in those, those moments. See, I, I had, I w- I'd become a little bit proud of what we had done. You know, like this was our thing. Look what we've built. This was my stage and this is my team that I've put together. I look back at some of my Facebook posts back then. I'm like, my gosh, somebody should have slapped me. You know, I'm, you, you can see it kind of seeping through. I'm giving God glory, right? But, but there's still something in me that's kind of like, I've made it, you know? And, and I can see now that that was going to, to, to hinder my growth as a leader. It was going to be kind of a, a lid for the church. It was going to hinder Mark's development because what happened was when I was gone, he had to step up and lead. And he got opportunities I wasn't going to give him. And I kind of have this mental picture now of God just kind of like, boom, you know, like kicking me to the back so that someone else could step up and learn and grow and develop the things I should have been doing all along. See, God could have let me prop myself up and make it all about me and stunt the growth of the church and stunt my own spiritual growth and my own growth as a leader and and stunt Mark's growth as a leader and as, as a disciple. But He loved me too much to let that happen. He loved Mark too much to let that happen. He loved the people of that church too much to let that happen, even though it was painful. He could have let Zechariah stay bitter about this barrenness, let it eat him up inside. He could have let David just wither under the, the weight of what he had done. He could have let Paul get all arrogant and let it destroy him, but he loved him too much for that. He loved us too much. You see, like David, he was rebuked, he repented, and then he rejoiced. God rebukes to bring rejoicing. God rebukes us to eventually lead us to a place where we can rejoice. I mean, when you finally see things from, from the other side of the pain, right? When you get far enough away where you can look back and have some, some perspective and you see what God was up to, just a little glimpse of it, it creates this thing in you where you worship him and you're thankful and you're grateful and you're humble and you rejoice. Like Zachariah, like David, we have to let those lessons we learn lead us to rejoicing and worshiping God, he rebukes us for our eventual rejoicing. For our eventual good. If you're hurting, you know, if you've messed up, if you're ashamed, if you're angry, don't don't run from God. Run to God where you find grace and mercy and healing. Zechariah has learned his lesson. His mouth has been open. He praises God, man. He, He gets it. He's learned from his mistake. And here's, here's the fallout. Verse 65, awe fell upon the whole neighborhood 
as the news of what happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. So, so his mouth is open, right? He's learned his lesson. He praises God and, and the result is people were in awe. You had rebuke and then rejoicing and then what? God got the glory. People look to him. That's what happens in our lives. That's what God does. When he moves through our lives, he draws people to himself. And Zechariah, man, he is fired up. His pain is, is leading now to, to, to his praise, right? Like he's, he's unstuck and he's ready to worship God. That's where we get to the, kind of the second half of these group of verses. It's called the Benedictus. The Benedictus, it's a good speech is what that means. Good speech, it's his prophecy. So you see, a couple of things to note here as we read, we're going to read, it's, it's a pretty long section of, of, of his thanks to God and what, what's going to, going to happen, this prophetic word of what's going to happen in this new covenant. His baby, John, is the one who is just born. Remember, Jesus is still in the womb, but he doesn't even mention John until about halfway through. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about God's ultimate plan of redemption. This was the, the greatest moment in Israel's history because the Messiah was here. And his eyes have been opened to the big picture in verse 67. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant, David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He's been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, he turns his attention to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven, I love this part. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. And then he gives us a little preview to what's to come. John grew up and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. So a couple of interesting things here with this Benedictus. There, there are three different references to three different covenants found in the Old Testament. There were actually six, but three that deal with salvation. You, you heard him mention it here. First, he mentions David. That's the Davidic covenant. It's, it's universal, right? It's talking about Jesus Christ's rule over all. Then you, he mentioned Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant. It's national. It talks about Israel, about God's promised blessing of that nation. And then you heard him talk about the new covenant. That's the one we are under today. It refers to God through Jesus, forgiving the sins of all of mankind. And Zacharias is, you know, where he doubted before, if you look at the, the, the language of how he worded these things and verbs he uses, that kind of stuff, 
He was so certain that God would do what he promised that he talked here about this redemption as if it had already taken place. Like it's happening. He knew that the birth of his son, John, signaled that God was about to visit his people and bring salvation, bring light to the darkness. That's our second takeaway today. God brings light to the darkness. He brings light to the darkness. It's what Jesus came to do. That was God's plan all along. The, the purpose of all these covenants was to bring light to the darkness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says it this way, For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light in the darkness that shines on our hearts so that we can know the glory of God. His plan all along was for us to be redeemed to himself, to be reconciled back to him. We were in darkness. God brings us into the light and he's working all things in your life right now, whether you follow him or not. God's working all things in your life to rescue you from that darkness and to bring you into the light. The morning light from heaven is upon you. See, we were created to live in the light, to live in his presence. That's, that's what we were created for. And when we live outside of the light, we live outside of the presence of God, we malfunction. Our life gets out of balance. Does your life feel out of balance? Do you feel like you're malfunctioning? Something's off. Maybe that's a sign to you that something is wrong. Maybe you need to run to Jesus, walk in his presence, do things his way, learn whatever lesson God is trying to bring you through, learn from it so you can move on, you can worship God, you can put one step in front of the other and move on with God. And maybe you're here and you're far from God and you know it. You've been running from him. Maybe he's been, he's been putting his hand and pressing on that thing in you, that, that source of pain. He's, he's calling out something in you, trying to, to deal with it. That's drawing you to your knees, drawing you to look to him. I, I don't know you, I don't know what you're going through, but I do know this, he has been pursuing you he is after you. He wants your heart. What, what's going on in your heart matters a lot to God. Let him in. I'm pleading with you today, if you're not following Jesus, man, start, start. He's got a plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. There, there's just, you know, not that when you're a Christian, your, your life just works out perfectly. We still go through stuff. We still struggle. Things still happen that are out of our control. I mean, there's going to be pain in your life, but you can know this. On the other side of that decision to follow Jesus is, is a life of fulfillment and purpose and peace 
love and joy, the things that only God's spirit in us can produce. So if if you've never made that decision, I'm asking you today, man, put your faith in Jesus, what he did for you on the cross. God loved you so much that he poured his wrath for your sin and my sin. He poured that out on Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He lived that perfect life that we can't live, and he he died a death on the cross as punishment for our sin. And now if we put our faith in him, we can have a a right relationship with, with, with God through what Jesus has done for us. I'm asking you to make that decision today. You can let us know about it on the app, the connect form. We'd love to walk with you. Talk about your next steps in your relationship with Jesus. You know, you'll remember God named John. He named him, Johannan. Gift from God, graced by God. Did you know that he, he named you as well? He named you. I'm not talking about the name your parents gave you. Maybe God told them, I don't know. But when you give your life to Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower, scripture tells us you are born again. You were born once into sin. You give your life to Jesus, you're born again. The, 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 the old is gone, the new has come, and God gives you a new name, a new purpose, a new identity. You're a new creation. First Peter says this, you're royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Holy nation, his very own possession, sons and daughters of the most high God adopted into his family, co-heirs with Christ, Jesus. He's not only our savior, he's our brother. And then he goes on to say, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. And you might say, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm I'm a believer, but I'm broken. I'm less than, I'm never gonna make it. I'm never gonna measure up. It's never gonna get better. My situation is impossible. I am who I always was. Nothing is ever gonna change. And God says, no, no. You're a new creation. You're still gonna mess up. You're still gonna struggle at times, but you're not who you were even on your worst day because of what Jesus did for you. You stand before him now. Yes, even now, fully justified. That means you stand before a holy God, completely blameless and perfect, no faults. It's mind blowing to think about, but that's how much God loves you. And that's what Jesus has done for you. Following Jesus, as we close here, the bottom line is it's all about trust. It's all about trust. Do you trust him or not? Do you trust him? You, you might not understand it. You might hate it, right? You, 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 don't, you don't get what he's doing. It, it's, it's painful. You, you can't comprehend what his plan could possibly be to, you know, when you look at your situations or whatever, that, that's all fine. But at the end of the day, can you get to the point where you're like, but I trust you but I trust you because I know that you love me perfectly. And I know that you're working all things for your good. 
David and Zechariah, you know, we, we know they were experiencing God's discipline, but we, you, you got to know this today. Whatever you've been through in your life, God isn't the cause of everything bad in your life. God isn't the cause of every painful thing you've ever been through. We know from scripture that it was discipline for Zechariah and David and some others, but, but sometimes the things we go through are because of our own stupid decisions. Sometimes the things we go through are because of someone else's stupid decisions that we're left to deal with. Sometimes the things in our life, the pain, the suffering, is just a product of the world we live in that's broken and cursed with sin. We don't always know if our, our struggles are a direct line of discipline from God. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. It's, it's dangerous to assume. Maybe you've assumed everything in your life is just discipline from God and you just feel like he's been beating you up. Maybe you've incorrectly assumed something in your life. It's, for some reason, he's punishing you. I, I don't know. You, we may not know this side of heaven, right? But what we do know for a fact is whatever he is doing is ultimately for your good. It's ultimately for his glory. Romans chapter 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That doesn't mean your life is just roses, right? That doesn't mean that God's will for you is just to be happy and healthy and wealthy. What it means is the things that we go through, God has a way of, of, of using them. Like he doesn't waste anything. He has a way of taking all this brokenness and, and weaving it into something beautiful, something that, that changes you, refines you by fire. It's ultimately for your good, always. God uses suffering for multiple people in multiple situations for the saving of multiple souls. Here's a translation. It's not just about you. Your pain and your experiences aren't just about you. There's a bigger picture at play. We can't see it, but God does. My, my experience life thing, it wasn't just about me. It was about me and Mark and the, the church as a whole. God does things for his glory and for our good. And it could be decades before we ever see it and we may never see it. We have to trust him. We have to learn and move forward. But remember this, he disciplines because he loves us. We, we have to learn and grow. Don't stay stuck today. Get unstuck, come out of the darkness, walk in the light. God's doing something in you. It might just look differently than you thought it would. He has a plan and a purpose. And for the ones that humble themselves and kind of press in to him, even in the difficult times, even if it's his discipline, for those walking in humility that will press in, there is joy and fulfillment and an abundant life with Jesus. We just have to remember, like Zechariah, that we serve a faithful, loving, promise-keeping God, period. Do you trust him? Even when it looks differently than you thought it would. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. This is a difficult thing to, to, to hear and to think about. And, we, we don't understand. I mean, there, there's so many things that you're doing, God. You, you're sovereign. You see the big picture. We, we see this little fraction of a fraction of a, a sliver of what's going on. And 
That means we have to trust you and trust is not an easy thing. So I, I pray with what we've heard today that as we leave this place that you would help us to identify well, what are you saying in this? What is in this for me? What's something I need to release to you? What, what's a wall that I'm hitting over and over and over that I'm not learning from? God, put, put your, your hand on that place in us. Press on that place, even if it's painful, God. We want to heal and to maybe even repent, to move on, to grow in our relationship with you, to get unstuck. God, do that in us. And we say, whatever happens, God, we trust you because you're a promise-keeping God. In your name, amen.